This is a hat trick podcast. Oh, lovely. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Do you remember your sex education? Was it helpful to you? Was it filled with scientific information rather than real, practical advice? I'm Diggory Waite, and this is The Real Sex Education. Each week, I'll be joined by a guest, we'll impart our own sex wisdom, ask our own sex questions, and we'll go over all the things they don't teach you in school. To bring this all together, though, we'll need an expert. A sexpert, if you will. But the only sex and relationship therapist I know is my mum. Hello, mum. Hello, Diggs. In this episode, we speak to activist David Stewart about his sex education. I don't talk about it enough. I talk about other people's. We talk about the chemsex phenomenon in the gay community. There are thousands of my gay brothers who need help, and this is not the right support service structure that I need. There are dodgy examples. For this example, I'm going to have sex with Kate on ecstasy, but I'm going to have sex with you on a different drug in a minute, Dick, so get ready for that. And it gets rude. I mean, how rude can I get? I've already had sex with both of you, so on drugs. (laughs) Hello and welcome to The Real Sex Education. I'm Diggory Waite and as ever, I'm joined by accredited sex and relationship therapist, Kate Campbell. Hello, Mum. Hello, Diggs. We did it. It's episode 10. Yay. Yeah, the last episode of series one. That flew by, didn't it? It is and I'm not yaying because it's the last one because it's been a blast. It's been brilliant. Fabulous guest. Amazing. We've had so much fun. Exactly. Uh, And we've got a cracker of an episode today for the final episode of the series as well. Every episode, Mum and I give sex and relationships a good going over with a guest. And this episode is, you know, slightly different. I mean, we still have a guest on. We talked less about the guest sex education and more about a phenomenon that they are very linked to, which is chemsex. Um, David Stewart, who coined the term. What did you think of the interview, Mum? Because I know you really oh, want to talk to someone about chemsex. I really, really wanted to talk to David, yes, because, as you say, he coined the term chemsex and he knows about it from a personal point of view and he also works with people affected by the chemsex phenomenon. And it was just the most amazing interview. And he was very honest. He was very honest. So be prepared. Mm. And it was very moving and mm. an incredible way to end the series. Absolutely. And and obviously, we talk a lot about drugs or chems, which are illegal. And when we're, we're speaking to David, like you say, he's really honest. And it's his, his own personal relationship with them. And yeah, as ever, if you struggle with any of the issues discussed in the episode, then we have helplines and links in the show notes. And after our interview with David, Mum and I open our mailbox for the final time this series, and it's your chance to have your questions answered by Kate, an accredited sex and relationships therapist. You can send your queries into podcasts at hattrick.com, that's hattrick with two Ts, or by using the hashtag, hashtag realsexedu, that's realsexedu. And don't worry, keep your questions coming in, and we'll get around to as many as we can next series. Right, that is enough of us. It's time for you to hear our fascinating interview with David Stewart, in which I began by asking him what his sex education was like. I had none. I don't remember any at all. 
I don't even remember the the pregnancy conversation. I, I, 1988 in Australia, I, there was none. I remember I was getting into trouble at home for something, and I was in bed, so I was going to trouble at bedtime. And the man who was raising me, he wasn't my dad, he was my uncle, but he, as I was lying in bed, listening to him educate me on everything I'd done wrong that day, my hand brushed across my penis, not in a sexual, just, it was just, it, I just moved under the blanket. And he giggled and said, oh, I guess we should talk about that one day too. And he giggled to himself, like it was a personal joke that I wasn't in on. And I wasn't, I didn't really get it. I was very young. That's the only mm. sex reference to sex that I can ever remember happening. So there was nothing from your family as well as nothing no, from school? No, no, no. I was raised in a family of zero hugging, zero touching, zero talk about sex. But even at boarding school, where I was in an environment of all boys in a Catholic boarding school, I don't remember anything then. There must have been something about pregnancy and condoms. I can't remember. Or disease. You'd think. Well, it's so mm. interesting that you say that because it's like you didn't have any formal sex education, which I'm sure you would have remembered because even a moment, a reference to educating you about sex that wasn't even fulfilled, that brush across your penis being like, oh, maybe mm, we should talk about... Remembered. You've remembered that. Mm. Yeah, so you really didn't have any wow. sex education at all. No, I'm in my early teens, there was nothing either. You know, uh, even in gay communities, we were talking about what club we were going to go to and we didn't talk about that. I remember at boarding school, we shared a dormitory. If someone was masturbating or got caught doing it discreetly under the blankets, he was a laughing stock of gossip the next day. So it mm. was... I assumed that oh, nobody God. ever did it. Nobody did it. And if you did you got ridiculed. I, I had no mm. idea that it was a normal, natural thing that people did every day. Wow. Mm. So, you know, I got into drugs and that disinhibited me. It fixed everything. Right. <laughs> 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 okay, well, now then feels like a good time to park the sex education chat and talk a little bit more about who you are and what chemsex is because it's a term that you coined, I, I imagine, a number of years ago now. So so what what is chemsex? Okay, so it's it's a it's a drug use phenomenon, I guess. It's a pheno it's a cultural phenomenon unique mm. to the gay community. So I mean, there's been loads of different drug use epidemics throughout history. We're very familiar now with the modern drug use epidemics like heroin and crack cocaine and alcoholism, and we associate that with street homelessness and crime and physical addiction. And I think we're all well aware of the stereotypes now, and our services are really good at addressing that. But there is another drug use epidemic that has emerged and it's disproportionately affecting gay men. It's absolutely associated with new online hookup culture like Grindr and stuff like that and particular drugs which didn't sort of exist culturally within this population a few decades ago and it's called chemsex. It has a name and it's different from other drug use epidemics. That's very interesting. So, so it's sex and the word chem, I'm guessing chem, chemicals, yeah. drugs. How did the term come about? I, I really don't know. I mean, I didn't think of the word chems. We, we used to historically go to a friend of a friend who lived in a house and buy our drugs from them or go to a club where you would see the dealer in the corner of the club and buy your drugs from them. But in 1990, we suddenly had these phones, these mobile phones, and we were suddenly texting people. And we didn't know what that meant. It was such a new phenomenon. Kate can probably identify with this better than you can, Diggs. Mm -hmm. But we were suddenly ordering our drugs via text. And we didn't know if the police could read our texts. We didn't know how things worked. We didn't know what online meant. We didn't know what the transmission in the mm -hmm. airwaves and who could listen. And so a whole new bunch of words and colloquial terms to describe chems and drugs came in. And that's how we get little nicknames for drugs. I mm. really just linked it to sex. So there were loads of people that would have sex on ecstasy after a nightclub. Mm. And that was really different because I was doing crystal meth. And when someone's wow. having sex on crystal meth, 
you don't want to have sex with someone who's doing on ecstasy. It's just such a different level playing field or psychological level. Mm. It's like a, a romantic sitcom gone really, really wrong. <laughs> um, <laughs> it just doesn't work. And so to identify ourselves as those of us who are using a different kind of drug specifically for sex, like chems, which is mm. crystal methamphetamine, methadone and G, GHB, mm. we called ourselves Chemsex Club. That was different from people who were doing ecstasy and having sex after they'd been clubbing, incidentally, on ecstasy. Because it's interesting. It seems like a marriage of two things here because obviously there's lots of people who will go out to a club and maybe at the end of the night they'll be looking to, you know, meet someone and have sex. Hook up. Yeah, exactly, hook up. But then there'll be other people who will go to a night out and they'll be looking to take drugs and have a fun time. So this phenomenon is the marriage of those two things where they're intrinsically linked. So you take drugs in order to have sex or enhance that side of things. Am I understanding that right? You're right. Um, as different sectors uh, like research have had tried to find a definition for chemsex and address this phenomenon, they've had to define things differently. So the way academia defines chemsex is the use of particular drugs, those three I mentioned, crystal methamphetamine, mm. methadone, and G, mm. specifically used for the purposes of sex. That's within the, def the academic definition of it. Not like I was having fun on drugs with friends, socialising, and whoops, I happened to pick up and have sex afterwards. Mm. No, specifically using those drugs for that purpose. And it, there, there tends to be a binge element as well, doesn't there? Yeah. Some of the people I've seen who have survived chemsex have said they lost weekends and oh, things yeah. like that. So the nature of these drugs, so ecstasy, um, if Kate and I were going to have sex on ecstasy, then... I don't want to think about that, but do go on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is a whole new world for me, this mother of son thing. I don't know what it's yeah. like growing up for you, Diggs. No. Uh, <laughs> But Again, no, I don't want to talk about that. That's that's a different <laughs> therapist I'll speak to that about. But you do go on. So, so for this example, I'm going to have sex with Kate on ecstasy, but I'm going to have sex with you on a different drug in a minute, Dick. So oh, fantastic. get ready for that. Yeah. So if I'm having <laughs> sex with Kate on ecstasy, then my skin is tingling and I feel empathically connected to her. I know what her skin feels like under my fingertips and I know what she's feeling and we're feeling the same way and I want to feel the same as her. I know what she feels like and what she wants and I'm present with her and it's not going to last more than best six hours, eight hours, you know, before that wears off, right. unless I continue doing another ecstasy. And you can kind of do that too, but it's mm. really your body's going to give in after a certain number of hours. Now, that's a great experience. It's not what we call chemsex. I'm very connected to you, Kate, and I really care about you and I can remember the whole experience. Now, Dick, if I'm going to have sex with you on, let's say, crystal meth, mm. then my brain is releasing dopamine way more than any other drug or activity on the planet can do humanly. You know, there's just so mm. much dopamine being produced and it's so ferocious in its appetite. Mm. I need more stimulation and more stimulation. So I might be having sex with you, but I need more. And I'm also looking at the porn while I'm doing it. And I'm looking, asking you what friends you've got on grind that you could bring over while you do it too. And while you're doing that, I'm thinking, what can we do next? Now let's change the porn because I need more stimulation because the nature of the dopamine high in the drug just means you need more stimulation, mental stimulation, sexual arousal. You need more stimulation. You're onto the next thing. Your brain is working so fast. So the nature of that drug is it stays in your body for such a long time that it's mm. typically a two or three day binge wow. you just can't sleep on day one probably can't on day two and you can on day three because you're physically exhausted so a typical binge is about a three-day episode and at no point during that three-day binge with you Diggs, would i be able to tell you what your skin felt like on my fingertips because i'm having a very different kind of ferocious chase of a high mm -hmm. so they're very different experiences when you describe it then i mean i think 
it's very hard to understand why people would pursue such a thing. So I, I want to ask that question and also why it's a gay phenomenon. Yeah. Now, it is a, a great question. I might need Kate's opinion on this because she's actually a therapist. I'm merely a drugs worker. I am a gay man that's experienced all this too. So gay sex is complicated for gay men. Uh, mm. that, that is awkward to say within gay communities because we've kind of owned our sexuality in such a proud, defiant way that it's hard as an activist to sort of say that there's something rotten at the core of our sexuality. So I'm not talking about everybody and all drug use at all. Mm. But gay sex was absolutely associated with death, disease and risk from the minute of the AIDS epidemic happened. Mm. It was pre-AIDS, it was already associated with disgustingness, okay? It's not mm. just that we didn't have our LGBT rights. No, I'm talking about gay sex here. Mm. I'm talking about penises in bums and how our dads don't want to think about that and they think there's something wrong and disgusting about it and they equate it with paedophilia and they equate it with abomination and sin and you grow up internalising all of these things. Kate, you'll have to help us understand what internalisation means in this regard. But we grow up internalising my sex that I like is about disgustingness. It's about mm -hmm. everything that my society hates, my religion hates. And then you bring AIDS into the mix and it's suddenly a death sentence too. This sex, which is supposed to be about love and connection and pleasure. And I just can't tell you what it's like to try to go to bed, shove your legs in the air and try to enjoy intimacy and disinhibition with all of that in the room with you. And mm -hmm. my God, the drugs help there. Yeah, I bet. Because, I mean, Diggs has got no idea of what it was like in the 80s with really awful homophobic discourses everywhere. It was horrific. And the internalised homophobia, people hating themselves for what they were, still exists to this day. And I think that probably this is a way of dealing with those feelings, which were awful. Because you, could, you just can't imagine just walking out into the street and just being hated for just because of who you were, just because of... Just just because of you. But also, yourself. I mean, I suppose as well, what you guys are talking about is it's not even walking out in the street and having people hate you. It's you're walking it's alone you and you hate yourself. Is that yeah. that's what you mean by that internalized homophobia? Yeah. And it was interesting what you said there, David, about trying to enjoy sex and, and removing the inhibitions, because when you hear about people who are addicted, let's say, to drugs, usually you'd say that there was a reason that they were medicating themselves. There was something that they were trying to take themselves away from. And I think then, is that why you would theorise that this works with the gay community because of this internalised homophobia? The way that they can enjoy sex is by completely removing almost, the, the, yeah, their brain, their nagging brain from, from the situation. Yeah. I mean, how rude can I get? I've already had sex with both of you, so on drugs. <laughs> Quite rude. You, you can get as rude as you like. Let me get rude then. So I'm lying back here, okay, and I'm getting a blowjob from somebody. And... What should happen is I should just be able to let my head go clear and enjoy the sensation of a, of a wet mouth on my penis and enjoy the pleasure of that without too much clutter in my brain. You know, I should just be able to feel the sensations, roll my head back and just feel that unencumbered. But what is happening for me, and this isn't unique to gay men, a lot of people can identify with this, but just there's something going on in my brain while that's happening. My head, it's going tick tock, tick tock, thinking, thinking, like, what do I do in reciprocation? How long do I stay in this position for? What do I look like in this position? Should I, should I flex while I'm doing this? Does he want mm. me to be top or bottom? What signals is he giving me? Because I'm not sure what comes after this. What does he expect of me? How long do I stay in this position for? And, you know, that is so noisy and complicated. And if everything goes okay, there's other things too. Like if I want to put my legs in the air and just get fucked, then I should be able to do that again. But 
as an older gay man where I grew up in a masculine culture, I was kind of taught that that was the feminine role. The man was on top and the woman was underneath. So by me just wanting to get fucked like a brilliant gay man and enjoy all that comes with that, I need to get over this decades of self-loathing and again internalizing the mm -hmm. hatred of my femininity or of a feminine role. All this noise in my head, I cannot, and plus the AIDS stuff as well, which I haven't even talked about, but there's just mm -hmm. so much stuff. I want to be disinhibited. I didn't learn that from my sex education and I didn't learn that from my parents and I didn't learn it from a big sister. I didn't learn it from the porn I was watching and I didn't learn it from the culture I was talking in. I didn't learn it from the clubs I was going to or from the gay charities that I found myself in. I learned it nowhere. But I found that drugs delivered that disinhibition to me really quickly and really easily. And they were so easily available within my community. Mm. So that's kind of a long answer to why gay men sort of do it this way more, but it's not exclusive to gay men. If we can delve a little bit more personally then, you found out about chemsex is because you were involved in chemsex. You said that it's a phenomenon that you watched grow and you saw from its infancy that means that you were one of the forefathers in some way, and if, if you coined the, the phrase. So how did you get into it? How Did you fall into it, or did you go with the, with the, with the flow of it? Okay, so my, my own history is kind of complex. So a middle-class background in Australia. Mm. Australia wasn't a great place to come out as gay in in the 80s. It wasn't. Mm. An AIDS epidemic was not a great time to come out as gay in. But I did learn that drugs were normal within gay culture anyway. They really were. If I hadn't been gay, it would have been less likely I'd have come across drugs in the socioeconomic circle I was raised in. Being gay took me to a demographic where drugs were very normally available. And that wasn't a problem. They weren't introduced to me as danger drugs. They were introduced to me as coping drugs. Because mm. although gay men tend to use less heroin and crack cocaine than their heterosexual counterparts do. We, in our culture, the normal ones have been things like ecstasy and MDMA and cocaine and party socialising drugs. And they helped a gay community through really difficult years, like an AIDS epidemic and through you know, societal attitudes towards gay sex. So yeah, I was an early adopter because drugs were normalised within my community, but it started to come into England in around the year 2000, a bit earlier than that, mm. to London. I started entering the gay community as a normalised drug use, not as a hardcore drug like heroin, but mm. as a new thing like ecstasy, a new recreational fun drug, without any warnings, without any um, cultural dialogue about, hold on, we're not doing ecstasy anymore, this is a really hardcore drug and you need a greater skill set to manage it. It was just there. So meth is not a party drug. It's not like ecstasy, not like cocaine. This is much more in the heroin realm that we're talking about. Um, it's not physically addictive like heroin is. It's great. It's very psychologically addictive. So it, mm. it creeps up on you in a very profound way. The devastation it has on your neurochemical activity is quite profound. So it really devastates you for a while after. So it's very easy to self-medicate your way through the come down, for instance. So meth is coming into England in the early 2000s. And are you in Britain at this point? Yep. Yep. So I was there. I've been here since 88. I had AIDS at the age of 20. And um, I'm talking about AIDS, not HIV. So it was a death sentence at the time. There was no treatment then until 1996. So I was pretty much waiting to die for that six-year period. Wow. And, and, I, and I wasn't enjoying sex either because of all those reasons I, I said. So yeah. finding a new drug that did things better than ecstasy did. Because like I said, ecstasy was a nice, pleasant experience, but I needed something much more disinhibiting. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, around 2000 is when... Um, it was first introduced to me by a friend who got it over from America, where it was very normal. He introduced it to me. 
I loved it immediately. It, it changed my whole life. I started having sex like a confident sex porn star, which I'd only been having sex before that, like an AIDS victim, awkward, mm. uncomfortable, ugly thing. Suddenly my sex life was pornographic and brilliant and disinhibited. So before long I was drug dealing. I got arrested for that. I don't do that anymore yeah. either. Um, yeah. Uh, but even uh, in 1996, when the medicines were invented and I became uninfectious to anyone else and I was not going to die anymore, I still had the legacy of that trauma that kind of made it harder for me to lift myself out of that drug use. So 1999 is when I probably first tried crystal meth. And in 2004, I was arrested. Um, and I stopped using pretty much when I was arrested in 2004. <laughs> So we've talked a lot about chemsex and David's personal history with it. You've referenced that you had some clients who have been involved in chemsex and you also referenced people being survivors of chemsex. What are the issues with chemsex? What are the problems with it as well? Well, as David was saying, it kind of takes over people's lives so that they're not having a normal life with normal relationships. They're self-medicating constantly with the sex and the chems. As he said, people feel very bad about something. And so this stops them from feeling so bad. It's a big distraction. But with a lot of things that make you feel good for a while, there comes a point where you start to need more to get the same hit you start mm. to find it taking over your life. You're not living a normal life. And I think David works with people to help them to find different ways to take care of themselves and different kinds of distractions. So when you're working with clients who are involved in chemsex, are you doing the same sort of thing as David? Not, or? No, not at all. No, he, mm. he is working with people at the coalface and... I'm working with people who reference having done it. And so I feel it's important for me to know about it, not as much as David, obviously, but to know mm. what they're talking about and to have some idea of what they've been through. You know, any, any of us who work with sex and relationships might see, well, anybody might see somebody who's been very affected in the ways that David was describing. And I think it's important to know what people have been through so that mm. you can listen to them and validate their feelings because there's no doubt about it. To begin with, it's a solution and it mm. makes people feel a whole lot better. 
but it, mm. it's later on that it maybe takes over a bit and then it's much more difficult to feel as if you've got a normal life and as if you're functioning. Mm. And David, you know, when people go to David, he's just saying these are choices that you could make that would be different and would lead you a different way. Whereas when people come to you and they talk about these experiences, you're sort of delving into why they're doing those things and trying to work out. Yeah. Is that is that right? Well, yeah. yes. I mean, I don't, people don't come to me with chemsex no, problems. No. Maybe it has been part of their history and mm, it's and a mm. very incidental part it may not be something that we dwell on very much at all but mm. I know about it I know what they're talking about and mm. it means that I think right there's something underlying that there's something else that maybe they need to do some work on and that's and it's really helpful to know that absolutely right thanks mum now back to our interview with David What do you think sex education needs to prepare people for the real world? Okay. Well, first of all, I mean, all those um, arguments about the age at which you can introduce people to sex, uh, fuck that. Mm. Get that out the door. I mean, you can talk to a four-year-old, a five-year-old, a six-year-old about what it feels like when something feels uncomfortable. And you can give them a sentence they can say to a trusted adult to say, that feels uncomfortable to me. Mm. Without mentioning sex or, or sex yeah. parts at all. Mm. You know, every child at any age can learn what it feels like to identify when something feels uncomfortable and wrong and mm. how to take that to a trusted person. I wish at some point my sex education had included the realities of HIV without the stigma because mm. I was uh, mm. I learned from my community that your sex, David, is about death and fear. Incorporate that right now. Uh, there was no sex education to counter that. I had an interesting situation where I was doing an event and there was this guy from Manchester. He was only 20 and he was HIV positive, but he was an activist and he was going to be on stage in front of an auditorium of 100 people. I said, what can I ask you and what do you want me to not ask you? You What are your boundaries here? And he said, you can ask me anything, David. I've done this 100 times. I'm an activist. I'm owning the Olysses. Ask me anything. I'm good. And I asked him how I became HIV positive and he answered brilliantly and I asked him, about his sex education in school and if it included HIV. And he said, yes, it was mostly about condoms and pregnancy, but they did say that HIV was a disease you can catch, but if you wear a condom, you won't catch it. And I said, okay, that's cool. I then said, if you'd been taught about PEP in school, now, just in case no one listening knows what PEP is, Diggs, I hear you hadn't heard of it either. I'll hold my hands up. I'd never heard of that. But Diggs, if I've had sex with an HIV positive and infectious person yesterday or the day before, I can go to any sexual health clinic or A&E department and get a medicine that will absolutely guarantee I won't catch HIV. PEP is a medicine that you can take, kind of like a day after thing. It kills it before it gets started. It's mm. a medicine you take for a month and everybody should know this. And it's it absolutely means... So there are clinics in London that give out tens of these every single day. Mm. Just like a, a morning after pill for pregnancy, there is mm. for the gay community, there's PEP, which you can take in the three days after a sexual episode that might have been risky. Now, I asked this guy on stage if his sex education at school had included talking about PEP, and he said no, it had no mention of it. Now, this guy, he was on stage in front of 100 people, and I asked him this question, if you'd been taught about PEP in school, might your life have panned out differently? And he broke down right there on stage, and I hated myself for having asked that question. I don't think he'd really been prepared for that. How Mm. many of the millions of people who are HIV positive that have been taught about that in school. So that's another one, mm. just one of many things that we should be taught about basics. Absolutely. This is an absolute scandal. Yes. How have I never heard about that? I feel like, I mean, I, as a guy who has a sex education podcast, you know, I, I should know about it. Is it a recent thing? No. 
Pep has been around for 15, 15 years plus. Has it? Yes. Prep is new. Oh, right. Okay. So uh, there's a new thing called prep. So, Diggs, if you or you, Kate, had an active sex life, and that might include people who might be infectious with HIV, you could take a medicine every single day of your life. It's called PrEP, just one pill a day. And no matter what you do, no matter who you have sex with, how safe it is or condoms or not, you can't catch HIV. That's new. So the PEP is like the morning after a risk. Mm. And PrEP is every day protecting against any possible risk that happens. So there's loads of ways to protect yourself from HIV, and these should be part of our sex education. Mm. But they say it's just the dirty gays you don't have to worry about. Not all gays, just the slutty ones. So we don't need to teach everyone that in school. My God, how do we talk about gayness in school anyway? Let's just not talk about it. As if Mm. AIDS and HIV only happens to slutty gay men. Mm-hmm. That is that is unbelievable because I I feel like a lot of the things we've covered, the things we've touched on, I feel like I've known about. I'm actually so flawed that I don't know about that. Well, I'm so flawed that they didn't teach you about it in school. Well, now I know he was there around all that time ago. I'm furious. It's terrifying. We like to ask all of our guests, David, how is it for you? I mean, you've had sex with mum and me at this point. Um, (laughs) So how was it for you? Um, Yeah, what are you taking away? And uh, usually sometimes we ask people what they've learned, but I feel like I'm the one who's done it. Exactly. Today I definitely (laughs) learned a lot. Um, But yeah, what, what are you taking away? Well, today I had an easy conversation with kind people about some really personal aspects. I talked about penises and bums with a heterosexual female, and I don't know what your sexuality is, Diggs, but... I mean, it's a spectrum, but that's a podcast in itself. So uh, heterosexual. Okay. In 1988, that couldn't be done. Yeah. I could not yeah. talk about my desire. I couldn't have... I laid back and let someone give me a blowjob, and I had sex on drugs with you, and I had easy conversations with kind people who let me talk about a very normal, natural part of my life. Mm. And that wasn't available to me in school. It wasn't available in my family. It wasn't available in my decade when I was going through puberty. It's mm. sort of not available now. But it is because kindness can help us overcome all obstacles. And if either of you had any yuckness about penises and bums, you let me talk about it anyway. And that's kind of you. Thank you. And that makes me feel hopeful for, for all we can do for people struggling with these things. I'm going to cry. <laughs> I, I already did a little bit earlier. This has been lovely. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. I had such a good time, David. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Take care. Bye. Goodbye. Goodbye. It's the mailbag. Thank you, queries. Two podcasts at hatch.com. It's the mailbag. Thank you, queries. Podcasts at hatch. Hello there. I have a query for Kate. I would like to know when the real sex education mailbag starts. The real sex education mailbag starts right now. Thank you. Thank you so much to David Stewart. Honestly, we could have spoken to him for hours and hours Mm, and hours. Definitely. Such a fascinating Mm. guy. And I feel like we only scratched the surface of what he's about too. So if you want to learn more about David, then you can go to davidstewart.org, not .com, .org. The man is literally an institution uh, to find out more. Right. For the final time in this series, Mum and I are going to delve into a couple of questions sent in by listeners to podcasts at hattrick.com and using the hashtag RealSexEdu. The first question today is from someone who'd rather keep their name a secret, and they ask, I feel that my partner is always critical and that I need to be constantly on the alert to defend myself. He says that I'm super sensitive and read negativity into everything. He also dislikes my family and thinks that I bend over backwards to please my dad whilst neglecting him. Does our relationship have a chance? Ooh, 
this is really difficult because obviously there are two sides to every story. It does ring some alarm bells because people kind of separating their partner from their family is always a bit of a worry. But also, on the other hand, there are a lot of people who do have a negative view of the world, a very sort of hypervigilant view of the world. They're always expecting people to be critical and to not like them. And that often happens when they've come from a family with very high expectations or who are critical or don't give much praise. So it mm. is very possible that that's what's happening here. And I think it might be worth the person who wrote this having a look at themselves and thinking about how much they really need to be as anxious as they are and whether they might need to get some help with that, possibly some counselling or something to think about whether or not they really need to be so anxious about other people and whether that's just coming from the past and trying to please their dad. Often people just need to like themselves a bit more and just just instead of thinking in black and white ways, just try to to, to ask themselves some questions occasionally. Is this appropriate? Should I be so anxious? Is my partner really being critical or are they actually just making a comment? Mm, mm. Are there any exercises in the meantime that you could suggest to them to, to rewire themselves to think that way? Yeah, to check them rather than to make assumptions about what the other person means to say, oh, that sounded hurtful. Did you mean that to sound like this? Or just say, oh, when you say that, do you mean this? And then they'll probably say, no, I didn't mean that at all. Mm, mm. Because quite often when you assume that people are out to get you, if you like, then you're so suspicious, they end up walking on eggshells themselves. Mm. And then, you know, they end up being out to get you. Yeah. Well, yes, yeah, it's, it's a self-fulfilling yeah. prophecy. They've got in the habit of being very defensive and being very, very careful if they're used to being criticised, if they got into the mm. habit when they were children. And it happens in a lot of families where there's a lot of banter and joshing and people think they're being funny. And actually some more sensitive children don't find it funny they they really mind and care mm, and take that into later life absolutely so it might be just be someone saying oh have we got any eggs you know and then mm. they think well he's telling me off because i didn't buy eggs mm. to be fair that does remind me of when you go have you put your shoes on yet and i'm stood there in my socks and i'm like you know i don't have my shoes on why are you asking me that when have i ever asked you that honestly mate let's not get into this now thanks that is true though that's never happened. It does. That happens all the that happens all the Oh, I don't believe it. Oh, have you, have you tidied your room yet? And you're looking at, you know, pants everywhere, clothes strewn on the floor. You know what you're doing. It's not critical, is it, though? And it's not banter either. It's so not banter. It's not stand? banter. It's a question. It's just yeah, a I know, reminder. But what I'm saying is, it's a polite yeah, reminder. Yeah, but what I'm saying is, is the egg, and it's exactly the same as this egg thing. No, it's not the same as the egg thing. It's not the same as the egg thing. Right. Right. Next question. Last question of the series comes from Dev. And Dev asks... A friend of mine told me she had an orgasm while scratching an insect bite. Is this possible? Well, it's funny, actually. Years and years and years ago, I was in this sex therapist group and somebody came in with a story like this about a mosquito bite. And, um, Can I hear you scratching right now? <laughs> I know. I'm really itchy now. Um, <laughs> but, but the thing is, where, where you've got some an area of the body that's super sensitive like mm. an itchy bite or something, mm. if you start touching it, it is possible that because it's super sensitive, 
you just might get that kind of thing happening. So what? it's it's really well, it's possible. I think it's possible, but That's I don't incredible. think it's well documented. I have mm, to say, mm. but what is well documented is things like people having super sensitive areas when they've perhaps had a spinal cord injury. Mm. So often the area over the injury is super sensitive. And if that's touched, people with paralysis can have an orgasm from touching the area over the injury. Wow. And that sort of thing. So there are, so I, I have heard, I have read about cases of people's noses being super sensitive. I and mean, I watched a film where someone had his ears touched. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like that. yeah. Yeah, yeah, ears are... Are common apparently classic but but mosquito bites and things like that not so common but i mean i reckon it's possible yeah oh my god i've just thought right maybe i should do the research on this and much like david with chemsex i can think of my own thing right get this in sex oh my come god come on no come on that's class and then no, i can be the phenomenon no, about no, having no. you know insect bites orgasms no. that can be my thing no. Insects. It's a terrible joke. Why? Oh, digs. Well, look, that's our episode and that's our first series in the bag. Thank you so much for listening. If you've listened to this whole series, then well done you. You're absolutely fantastic. And we love you so much. Thank you so much. There will be more to come in a few weeks' time. Great. So please do, yeah. So please do stick around and make sure you're subscribed to wherever you're listening to this podcast. Uh, a big thank you to the team at Hatchet Podcasts, specifically Andy and Claire, for giving me and mum the chance to do this. Yeah. Absolutely. So blooming grateful. Yay. Check out all the other podcasts that Hatchet have to offer in the meantime, whilst you're waiting for us to return for our second series. And lastly, mum, um, I wanted to thank you. Yeah, it's just been an absolute pleasure to have you alongside me these last 10 weeks and I can't wait for 10 more. Oh, you too, Diggs. It's been amazing. We've had so much fun. We have. I love you. I love you too. See you next series, everyone. Goodbye. See you. Bye. You've been listening to The Real Sex Education, which is hosted by Diggory Waite and Kate Campbell. The show is produced by Andy Goddard and Diggory Waite. The Real Sex Education is a Hattrick podcast. If you'd like to hear more podcasts by Hattrick, including Time Ghost with Alexander Armstrong and Ben Miller, just search Hattrick Podcasts on your podcast provider of choice. This podcast is based on the real-life relationship between Diggory Waite and his mother, registered sex therapist Kate Campbell. The show is therefore inspired by, but otherwise unrelated to, the TV show Sex Education. But, yes, Diggory does wish his co-host was Gillian Anderson. 